particularly in children, it's rare that we see an acute um, anthracycline-induced cardiac uh, toxicity. It's usually presenting um, 10 or more years later uh, after exposure. In one particular British cohort, 30% of patients who had survived their childhood cancer had actually died within 45 years of that diagnosis. Only 6% of those were expected to have died in that time. Half of them went on to develop a new primary cancer, but a quarter died of cardiovascular disease thought to be caused by their treatment. Because of things like that, Efforts to reduce long-term mortality for cancer survivors has focused on reducing exposure to the most toxic aspects of anti-cancer treatment, including radiotherapy. I'm Duncan Jarvis, and in this podcast, I'm joined by Daniel Mulrooney, Associate Professor at the Division of Cancer Survivorship at St. Jude Children's Hospital. He's also one of the authors of a new longitudinal study just published on bmj.com, which tries to examine whether those efforts at reducing cardiovascular effects of childhood cancer treatment has actually worked. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. No problem. Thank you for inviting me. Um, so this is this is an interesting paper. When we talk about cancer survivorship, you know, we often think about um, maybe two, three, five, ten years survival. Um well, what you're doing here is looking much more long-term and not only looking at, at survival, um, mortality, but also morbidity after someone's had a, a childhood cancer. Um, before you're, we get into to what you found uh, specifically, what do we already kind of know about, about the long-term effects of having a childhood cancer on, on someone's quality of life and, and also longevity? Well, we've learned from these large cohort studies, such as the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study, um, that while treatments have improved for pediatric cancer, and the majority of these children now are living um, many years beyond their diagnosis and treatment, um, and particularly for children, that means many decades of life saved. Um, And so from these large cohort studies, we've begun to realize that that has long-term repercussions for their their health um, and uh, physical health, mental health, and healthcare access uh, later in life. Uh, The Childhood Cancer Survivor Study reported several years ago that up to two-thirds of these now adults will have some type of chronic health condition related to their prior cancer therapy. And, you know, this has been known for a while, and and part of what you've done in in this study is think about the, or look at the the changing kind of treatment regimes that have uh, happened over time and, and the effect that that has had on on some of the outcomes you've been talking about there. Um, you've mentioned this as part of the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? It's a, a, it's a big cohort study. Who Who's in there? What was it set up to, to do? 
So it's a, it's a large cohort uh, designed to follow survivors, five-year survivors of childhood cancer longitudinally. It was initially set up in the mid-1990s, approximately 1994-1995. Um, it collects self-reported data uh, based on questionnaires that are sent to these long-term survivors. Uh, it is a multi-institutional study. Uh, including survivors that have been treated at 25 different institutions across the United States and, uh, and Canada. Uh, survivors receive a questionnaire and they respond. Question, the questionnaire is everything from uh, ask them questions about demographics, uh, health conditions they've been diagnosed with, uh, psychosocial issues, uh, employment, uh, income. So it's very broad based. Uh, approximately uh, five to seven years ago now, the the cohort was expanded because initially it included survivors who were diagnosed from 1970 through 1986. And obviously over time that becomes somewhat dated. So the cohort was expanded to include survivors now who were treated from 1970 all the way through 1999, which provides an opportunity, as we did in this study, to really look at outcomes based on the decade of treatment uh, because it becomes important to know that while survivorship from childhood cancer has improved, that's based upon changes in treatment over those decades. And so now we have the ability to really look at out temporal trends in these outcomes um, and see what's happened over a 30-year time span. Mm. And that's that's a, a really fascinating thing, and obviously is is important for our understanding of, of what treatment regimes um, to offer children now. Um, you decided in this study to focus down specifically on cardiac events. Um, why was that? What did you? Why that as opposed to to any other morbidity or or even mortality? Well, some of that's out of my personal interest. Uh, my background is training in adult medicine and pediatric medicine before I trained as a pediatric oncologist. Um, so I'm particularly interested in uh, chronic health conditions that, that occur in adults based upon childhood treatment. Um, of those health conditions, I'm most interested in cardiovascular outcomes. Uh, there are a large group of investigators involved, as you would expect, with the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study, um, many investigators with interest in different uh, chronic health conditions. Uh, and so prior to my publication, uh, the childhood cancer, others in the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study have published uh, a look at the changes in, in mortality, uh, changes in second cancers, changes in overall chronic health conditions um, for these survivors. Um, so this area was of particular interest to me because it's, it's where I have focused most of my uh, research career. Um, and I think of note, um, I'm quite proud that this research article is in the BMJ because it was 10 years ago that we published the first uh, analysis of cardiac outcomes in the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study, and we published that paper in the BMJ as well. Um, so this is a nice opportunity to follow up that study and see what we've seen 
across these decades. And uh, so people should bear in mind that this is this is one element of a, a much bigger picture that's coming out of this um, this large cohort. So let's let's delve into uh, what you found there. Then um, your methodology and everything is all in the in the paper for people to have a look at, and that's where they should do that. So yeah, let's skip to to what it is that you you found when you did start looking at these um, decades of treatment. Uh, what kind of patterns emerged? So we took survivors and, and did a degree stratified them by their decade of treatment, uh, the 1970s, the 1980s, and the 1990s. And as we did in the previous initial BMJ uh, publication looking at cardiac outcomes, we again went back and we looked at very specific cardiac outcomes, the, the first being congestive heart failure, um, but also looked at coronary artery disease, valvular disease, pericardial disease, and arrhythmias. Um, because these are many of the cardiac outcomes, the adverse cardiac outcomes that we see in adult survivors of childhood cancer. The first of those, congestive heart failure, is probably the most prominent. Um, Many of the treatments for childhood cancer include therapies that can be toxic to the heart. Um, That includes a a class of drugs called anthracyclines that's commonly used, Um, and of course radiation therapy to the chest or to the heart. Um, And we've known for a long time that there's a high risk of developing congestive heart failure later in life. Um, But over the intervening years, we've learned that these young adults are also at risk for premature coronary artery disease. Um, Radiation particularly can injure the uh, heart valves, so they're at risk for valvular disease, um, and also pericardial disease and arrhythmias later in life. So, so there is this this changing pattern over time, and I suppose that's uh, what we should expect to see. Um, when you when you looked at this, was the uh, you know how did that fit in with um, the other kind of outcomes that that you've been looking at or other people have been looking at in in this cohort? Did that sort of fit with with increasing um, or sorry? Does that fit with decreasing um, morbidity after after having cancer? Well, it, it, that's an interesting question, uh, and and particularly for this analysis for cardiac outcomes, um, I thought it would be challenging at the outset because cancer therapy for children has changed dramatically over the 30-year time period that we looked at, um, but it's changed in, in various directions. Uh, and as we point out in the paper, the, the use of radiation, and particularly high-dose radiation to the chest, that has begun to decrease. Um, and, and early on, even you know, long before my time, uh, investigators knew that radiation in children could cause long-term effects. And, and initially, those were musculoskeletal effects. Um, children didn't grow or they had scoliosis. Um, or we've learned that particularly in young women, they were at a high risk for breast cancer uh, if they had chest radiation at an early age. So because of those studies, investigators have tried to reduce the dose and the fields of radiation um, since the 1970s. Um, So while that dose has decreased in 
in reverse, the use of anthracyclines has begun to increase. Um, and we know that anthracyclines can be toxic to the heart, can predispose to early congestive heart failure. Now that dose, that's related to the dose. So the higher the dose, the higher the risk. And as radiation doses came down and anthracycline began to be used more commonly in children, initially at high doses, we see, we see competing uh, use of cardiotoxic therapies. And we saw that in this cohort. We saw the, the radiation dose decrease over time. We saw the use of anthracyclines increase over time. But fortunately, what we saw is that the, the group that's in the lower category of anthracycline exposure, less than 250 milligrams per meter squared, that's where the dose, uh, the, 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 the number of children treated at those doses began to increase. Fortunately, children treating at doses higher than that, and thus a higher risk, um, that we didn't see a great increase in that high dose uh, category. So at the very beginning, it made it a little difficult to parse these two therapies out and l different opposing cardiotoxic therapies and then look at what their effect is upon the heart. So I think that led to some of the results that you see in our paper. We, we saw a general decline over the years in congestive heart, particularly in congestive heart failure and coronary artery disease and also in valvular disease. But the significant finding was in the decrease in coronary artery disease. And that is most likely related to the decrease in the use and the high dose of radiation to the chest and thus the coronary arteries. When you're you're looking at the kind of these downstream effects of of treatment, um, I just wondered how quickly these might begin to have a, a clinical effect uh, on on these survivors' lives. Um, you know, when you look at your data, and I suppose this might be confused by the the change in in treatment regimes that you just outlined. But um, were you able to tell you know how quickly the effects of, of the, those side effects were being felt? No, generally you can't. Um, many of these late effects occur years after therapy and after exposure to radiation and or chemotherapy. Um, particularly in children, it's rare that we see an acute um, anthracycline-induced cardiac uh, toxicity. It's usually presenting um, 10 or more years later uh, after exposure. Um, and in a way, that's, that's what we've learned from, from children. Um, these children have many years of life uh, after their cancer diagnosis and treatment. Um, and so following them in a cohort such as the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study um, has allowed us to learn that these events occur much later. Um, however, their children when they're treated and they're really young adults when they're having these cardiac events. And they're having cardiac events that you might otherwise expect uh, somebody in middle age or somebody in later life to be having. Um, so it, it, 
it's very clinically important um, because we're dealing with a young adult population that you might not otherwise think is at risk for coronary artery disease or congestive heart failure. Um, so that has repercussions for how should these survivors be followed, um, what screening do they need long-term, um, and, and the importance of, of primary care, that they have access to health care and they have a primary care provider who understands that the risk for a young adult who's had these exposures as a child is quite different than uh, an adult who, who has not otherwise had these cardiotoxic exposures. And I suppose it might have an effect on, you know, as you say, we now don't, um, the treatment regime has changed because of our awareness of of uh, cardiotoxicity, so less radiation, uh, less cardiotoxic drug. But, um, you know, when we're thinking about new treatments or or what might particularly work for someone the the fact that these these um outcomes will be quite far downstream is important to to be aware of as well oh you raise a very good point um it's it gets very complicated because um Everybody needs to be aware of the risks uh and we're talking about long term risks um Children, some children, when they become young adults, don't always necessarily transfer into adult health care. Um, they may not be aware of their exposures. Um, in fact, there are studies out there that show that uh, adult survivors of childhood cancer, while they may know they were exposed to chemotherapy or they may know they were exposed to radiation, they don't know the details and they don't know um, that the chemotherapy could be toxic to their heart. Um, and, and as you just pointed out, of course, some of these therapies have changed over the years. Um, so you know, one survivor may have been exposed to very high doses of an anthracycline and be considered at high risk, while another may have been exposed to smaller doses or, or maybe no cardiotoxic exposures and be at next to no risk. Um, so it's, it's, it's very difficult for the survivor, um, and, and it's not easy really for the primary care community who's seeing these uh, now adult survivors of childhood cancer um, to piece that out and understand the specifics of the therapy. Um, so a number of institutions, and I, I think really most large cancer centers now, have developed programs to to one, follow uh, cancer survivors. You know, and I, I should say that this also, you know, is extended now. This is important for uh, survivors of adult cancers to be aware of as well. So large cancer centers have largely created uh, survivorship programs where they will follow their survivors for a period of time um, and, more importantly, provide uh, what we call here at St. Jude, we call it a survivorship care plan. And really, all survivors should have some type of a document that outlines the treatment that they had um, and, and provides some information about what that means for their risk for, for cardiac disease or for any other health outcomes going forward and makes some suggestions for long-term follow-up care. Mm. And uh, some while ago in the BMJ, we also published a paper looking at... Um, 
new drugs that were coming onto the market um, that were being approved for um, cancer therapy. And looking at the kind of outcomes that were being measured there, and often it was um, it was proxy outcomes to do with uh, diminishing tumor size or something, not necessarily overall survival. And definitely what they weren't doing is, is very long-term follow-up to... Uh, to look at maybe what some of the the effects that you're picking up in in this kind of study are, do you think that you know this cohort has implications for for new drugs coming onto the market and and what we should be putting in place to to measure the outcomes, um, measure the long term survival uh, and morbidity of the patients put on them? That's a really important question. Um, you know, we've we've had the the ability to follow these children for many years, um, and and this is one of the first studies really to look at changes in treatment over three decades. Um, but that's a very important question that newer agents are now coming to the market, um, and we really need newer agents. And, and, and you see therapies like immunotherapies and uh, CAR T cells, and, and, and we need those to continue to improve overall survival rates for children diagnosed with cancer, or for that matter, anyone diagnosed with a cancer, um, we, we've not we've not achieved a hundred percent cure um, in pediatrics. Approximately eighty percent of the children become long term survivors, but that means we're still missing twenty percent. So we need new therapies. We need to develop, uh, you know, new agents, just as as you mentioned. Um, but it raises important questions. We we don't have the follow-up yet on those agents, and we don't know what the long-term effects will be. Um, you know, for example, here at St. Jude, we've started something called the St. Jude Lifetime uh, Cohort Study. Uh, it's smaller than the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study, but we've enrolled survivors of childhood cancer, and we're inviting them back to the institution um, for a clinical assessment. And our goal is to bring these survivors back approximately every five years for the remainder of their life. So as we start to bring in survivors who are treated, you know, similar to my study here, who are treated with um, contemporary therapies, we'll, we'll, we'll validate what we found. We'll continue to see if, if the outcomes are as we predicted. Um, we may be able to identify new outcomes or health issues that, that we need to screen survivors for. But more importantly, we need to start bringing in survivors who are now uh, being treated with more contemporary therapies, uh, newer agents, as you mentioned. Um, and we're really going to need to study them and follow them long term. We don't know the answer yet. Um, hopefully all of those therapies will result in an increase in long-term uh, survivorship for these pediatric patients. And then that'll give us the opportunity to learn down the line what that means for their long-term health. And maybe you'll be coming back and, and publishing something about that with us down the line, right, Daniel. We'll definitely need to do that. Um, these therapies are, you know, as you know, they're very needed. Uh, many large uh, uh, research consortia uh, are, are investigating these new agents, and, and we really we need those. Um, but the time will tell. Um, so we'll have to continue to follow these, these young people.
Well, the article that we've been talking about, major cardiac events for adult survivors of childhood cancer, diagnosed between 1970 and 1999, is now available on bmj.com. Daniel, thank you very much for taking some time to talk to us. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. That's it for this podcast, but we'll be back very soon with a new talk evidence where we'll be looking at some surprising research about the power of blinding. That research suggests it might not always be worth the effort when it comes to designing your trial. That will be available on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. And you can also let us know what you think about the podcast there by leaving us a review. So until then, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.